There are a lot of problems in the world that we can attribute to men's testicles. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes, and instead get up close and personal with the lesser-known legacies and real-life bad behavior of some of history's most notable people. We made it to election... not into election day. We made it to inauguration day. We sure did. It only took a thousand years. Yeah. Uh, and that was this month. But, <laughs> but we're here. We made it, yeah. Uh, it still feels surreal. Like, there, as of as of the time we're recording this, there have so far been no uh, major terrorist attacks or... Uh, you mean since the last one? Further insurrections, yes. Right. But yeah, just to like even temporarily rid ourselves of this feels so good. Right. And just to clarify for folks listening, you're listening to this on Inauguration Day or after the inauguration. We are recording it before, so we are tempering our excitement just a bit, just in case. I mean, I'm tempering my excitement just because uh, I feel like this will not end. It will just go on forever and ever and ever, and I will always be looking over my shoulder. That could be a very real consequence of what has transpired over the past few years. Nonetheless, it is Inauguration Day. In honor of the inauguration of our 46th president, this week, I'm taking it all the way back to president number one. President number one, Lady Gaga herself. <laughs> Beyonce, Queen Bee. <laughs> oh, wait, that's a monarchy. <laughs> Never mind. Sorry. Yeah, parliamentary. Uh, who is this week's hero? This week's hero is very obviously George Washington. What do you know about George Washington? Well, I know he's on the quarter. Um, See, I had a moment there where I was like, is he? Okay, <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, he was the first president of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And he was a Revolutionary War general and a major supporting character in Hamilton the Musical. <laughs> All very true things. Yes. He, uh, another true thing was that he was born on February 22nd, 1732. Apart from situating us in the 18th century, you know what that means. It's time for Audrey's Astrology Corner. The complex personality of a Pisces born on February 22nd is sheltered behind a quiet facade. But they have courage and are always ready to make tough decisions. Their winsome glamour... Isn't that a nice phrase? Winsome glamour? What does that mean? I don't know, but it sounds <laughs> so good. Their winsome glamour makes them lovable as well as interesting. Although conscious of personal achievement, they're equally aware of the long road they must take to get there. Just to clarify, you said February 22nd. Mm-hmm. A Pisces born on February 22nd. Is that every February 22nd or just this particular 1870-something? Every. Every. Oh, okay. And it's like the start of Pisces season, right? Because it's the 22nd and most, oh, um, is it? yeah, most uh, astrological signs shift over on the 21st, 22nd. I didn't know this. Okay. Well, so I feel He's like- He's right on the cusp. I feel like we should have a specifically tailored horoscope, right? Is it like per year? Is that oh, not absolutely not. No, no, no. 
See, then the Barnum effect wouldn't work. I see. I For some reason, I thought earlier on you were like, oh, no, this is like this particular February 22nd. No, just the date, not the year. And for folks who don't know, the Barnum effect is when you use sweeping uh, categorization or broad description of things so that people can insert their own personality or ideas into it. As much as I would love for this to be an Audrey and Elliot discuss Zodiac Signs podcast. Yeah, okay, fair enough. We should probably get back to George Washington. Yes, that's right, that's right. So, so George Washington. Like Abraham Lincoln, Washington has had tens of thousands of books written about him. Spoiler, I read none of them. Not one, not, okay. Not a single one, not even a, a children's book. And so if folks are interested in finding out the minutia of George Washington's life, you could do that in abundance. Nobody's interested in that. Nobody comes here to learn things like that. So instead of this sprawling autobiography start to finish of his life that we do with some of our heroes, we are going to, or I am, I guess, narrowly focus this episode on how George Washington became essentially one of the most wealthy people in Virginia and how Mount Vernon, as we know it, came to be. We are going to start at the beginning, though. Just a little background. Okay, okay. It's helpful context. So he was the first of six children born to his father, Augustine, and his mother, Mary Bell. But his father, from a previous marriage, had three children. That's nine of them. Okay. Nine of them. And three of them were born in England. His father was born in England. Washington's family came to America a while back, but not all of them. And so uh, George Washington's father had three children in England, came to America, met Mary Bell, had six more children. They were a wealthy family, and they had made their money from what is known as or was called land speculation, which is exactly what it sounds like, like buy low, sell high, Come to the free world. You look around. You're like, look at all this land we just stole from indigenous people. Yes. Real estate moguls. Real estate moguls of the 18th century. Wow. Okay. Just so you have some context, he grew up with means. Got it. His father had a number of estates, in fact. He actually had no formal education. Like, he didn't go to prep school or anything. He had tutors now and then. But he apparently excelled in a very specific number of things, like trigonometry and land surveying. Wait, so no school, but just like picked up trigonometry on the side? I mean, he like, you know, he had a teacher, but it wasn't like a formal prep school. He didn't go to, you know, there were no fancy schools in rural Virginia at the time. Got it. Got it. But uh, land surveying. Yeah, I guess uh, family business. Indeed. When he was 10 or 11, his father died. And it left him in this strange limbo, this like strange precarious moment in his life where he was both the ward of his older brother, Lawrence. So Lawrence was an older brother from England who came over, now lives in America on one of their shared father's estates. Yeah. He's now a ward of Lawrence and also an enslaver of 10 people. Wait, at 10 years old? Yes. At 10 years old, when his father died, Lawrence inherited Mount Vernon, what would become known as Mount Vernon, and all of the enslaved people there. And George inherited what was called Fairy Farms and all of the enslaved people forced to live there. Before we go any further, I want to make 
just a note about some language. So for a, a very long time, the conversation about the institution of slavery, the way people talk about it, referred to enslaved people as slaves, referred to as the enslavers, as masters. The, you know, common phrasing was owning instead of like forcing or demanding, holding hostage, etc. I'm going to use enslaver, enslaved, and held against their will, those, that language that is um, much more accurate. And I want to take that learning and apply it. Sure. That being said, there are a few quotes from sources at the time that will refer to enslaved people as slaves. So just keeping that in mind, I want to want to be accurate to that as well. So between his older brother, additional hired men who like worked for fairy farms and a man by the last name of Fairfax, Washington made it through his teen years <laughs> and into the 1740s. He ends up earning this surveying degree or certificate or license, whatever he needed to become the official surveyor of the county in which he lived. Oh, OK, so, yeah, surveyor school. Who, who knows? Maybe it's study by mail, Pony Express <laughs> at this point. It's correspondence learning about how to survey your own property. Yes, yes. He's very good at it. He becomes the official surveyor of this county in 1751. So he's almost 20. Around the same time, Lawrence gets tuberculosis. So George is like, hey, I've heard about this place called Barbados. We should go to Barbados where you can recover from tuberculosis and I'll go with you. As good a reason as any to go to Barbados. <laughs> At the time. <laughs> he hopes it will help his brother get better. It does not. Lawrence dies. But you couldn't die in a nicer place, really. <laughs> have you ever been to Barbados? No, I've never been to Barbados. You've never been to Barbados? No, but Brianna has been to Barbados. And let me tell you, she talks it up. She, she really does. does. Yeah. Pictures from Carnival every year. Primo. Yeah. So... George Washington is at Carnival. <laughs> he is. His brother dies. Insult to injury. He gets smallpox. The brother? Uh, George. Oh, okay. I was going to say brother's it's a dead. redundant for the brother to get <laughs> smallpox at this point. Brother's dead. That's the injury. Insult is that George gets smallpox. Got it. It's also an injury. Let's be, it be is. clear on that. In fact, it really scars his face. Yeah. So uh, this gets left out of, I guess official portraits at the time, which were just painting, he had a moderately scarred face from smallpox. Hmm. He recovers, returns to the U.S. in 1752. So at this point, he's 20. He heads from Fairy Farms, where he had been living, down the road to Mount Vernon because his brother's dead. So now he can have the nicer place. He's the man of the estates, he, I guess. He is. He goes to Lawrence's widow and he's like, hey, I'm going to lease this property from you. And, you know, it's a plantation, so I'm going to lease this property and all of the plantation grounds, the tobacco, the agriculture, all of it, from you until you die, which she does like 10 years later, okay. at which point he officially inherits it. <laughs> it's Got his. it. Oh, it was hers until she was... Okay, interesting. Right, because she was married to the yeah. quote-unquote rightful owner of this stolen land. Over the next few years, it's the early 1750s. And there's some battles going on all around him. He's serving in some military positions, but mostly voluntarily. His real pride and joy is this vision he has for the expansion of Mount Vernon and what he believes to be the potential of 
this land, agriculture. Agriculture is like the the big thing happening in America. You steal all this land, you're finally in a place to like grow stuff. Sure. Of course, this expansion includes what Washington called the management of his species of property. His species of property? Yes. In other words, the people he enslaved. Yes. So remember, he inherited 10 enslaved people when he was like a preteen. When he moved to Mount Vernon, the property there came with 18 enslaved people. So now he has nearly 30 enslaved people that he is forcing to work on this land. And he's and he's sitting there plotting, thinking, uh, how I can't wait for the expansion of this forced labor camp that I've got going. Essentially, right? And so this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about George Washington, the enslaver, not George Washington, the military person, not George Washington, the first president, because I think it's really important. It gets left out of the historical narrative of George Washington that while he is sometimes referred to as one of the first great farmers in America, he was actually one of the first large plantation owners and enslavers in America. And that's not the story that gets told. Yes, what became, right, the model for the Southern economy for, you know, the next 100, 150 years. Right. And there are people doing it all around him as well. But any mention of agriculture in George Washington makes it seem like he was this mastermind who knew how to rotate crops and turned a profit every year and all of these things, instead of saying, like, he exploited the forced labor of enslaved people and sold tobacco. Uh, to the extent, right, like, that he's doing it, it is the foundation of uh, the American economy and, like, the, you know, ruling class of the time. Yes. In 1759, so he's 27, he marries Martha Dandridge Custis. She is the widow of a plantation owner, Daniel Custis. So she comes with her own wealth, but she was from a wealthy family. She's very educated. She has two small children when they get married, um, but because of a difficult birth from the second child and the potential infertility of George Washington as a result of smallpox, they never have children of their own. They have an apparently very happy marriage, but they both are upset that they never had children of their own. Yes. And quick fun fact. Um, before COVID-19, one of the fastest vaccines ever developed was smallpox. And many scholars attribute it to the fact that unlike a lot of other diseases, it directly attacked men's sex organs and made them infertile. And so uh, in terms of regulatory speed uh, and just like once they started development from conception until production, four years was the previous record. There are a lot of problems in the world that we can attribute to men's testicles. <laughs> but in this case, I am uh, at least glad that <laughs> that very specific organ uh, sped up the vaccination process for a disease that was so deadly and so widespread. Speaking of testicles, George gets married. As a result, he ends up with an additional 18,000 acres of land. Yikes, that's a lot of land. Before that, he had expanded Mount Vernon to have 8,000 acres, and he thought he was like big time balling. But this marriage... Triples. More than triples his land. 
it does. And it uh, increases the number of enslaved people forced to work for him as well. So he, another 85 enslaved people come to work for, or forced to work for George Washington at Mount Vernon and a number of his other properties that come with his marriage to to, uh, Martha. As a result of this exploitation of forced labor, George Washington essentially becomes one of the wealthiest and most respected men in Virginia. It's a big, like, pyramid scheme situation. I mean, that'll do it. It's all you need, right? Bunch of land, a bunch of people that are uh, forced to work for you on the land. And wow, you're all of a sudden very rich. And like I said, so, you know, we think of him through this singular lens of he's on the quarter, first president, he was an army general crossing the Potomac. But in reality, for a large portion of his life, starting when he is a child until he dies, he is also an enslaver of human beings. And he behaved accordingly. So he forced enslaved people to work six days a week, providing some food, essentially one outfit a year, like a set of clothing, and shelter. Many enslaved people at Mount Vernon were forced to hunt and trap and plant their own gardens just to survive, just to have enough food to survive. We'll talk about it more in depth in a second, but, you know, he did the traditional thing of separating families across various estates. He forced men and women to leave one another and leave their children for prolonged periods of time. Uh, Corporal punishment was utilized. He thought of it as a quote-unquote last resort, but it didn't fucking stop him from having essentially middle managers torture enslaved people. And he, it's such a strange detail, in fact, but he used blankets as a reward for enslaved people that he thought were doing a good job. So people were essentially starved, not given enough food to survive on their own. And then your your best case scenario is you're rewarded with a blanket to sleep with. Best case If you can believe it, he was also a micromanager. So in one article, I'm going to quote, it's a pretty long quote, but this is what it says. Although Washington employed a farm manager to run the estate and an overseer at each of the farms, he was a hands-on manager who ran his business. This is Audrey talking, not the article. Fuck you, not a business. No, not a business at all. Back to the... His, His labor camp. Yes, his labor camp. Back to the quote, who ran his business with a military discipline and involved himself in the minutia of everyday work. During extended absences, while on official business, he maintained close control through weekly reports from the farm managers and overseers. He demanded from all of his workers the same meticulous eye for detail that he exercised himself. A former enslaved worker would later recall that, quote, the slaves did not like Washington, primarily because... Quote, he was so exact and so strict. If a rail, a clapboard, or a stone was permitted to remain out of place, he complained, sometimes in language of severity. Unquote. In Washington's view, quote, lost labor is never to be regained. And he required every laborer, male or female, as much in the 24 hours as their strength without endangering their health or constitution will allow of. He was constantly disappointed with enslaved workers who did not share his motivation and resisted his demands, 
leading him to regard them as indolent and insist that his overseers supervise them closely at all times. Just the audacity to be like, oh, yeah, they don't have my same motivation. Right. (laughs) They're not motivated to be an enslaved person who works for, like, scraps. I mean, just like the raw entitlement to be like, why aren't you more happy to be here? Exactly. And um, so Mount Vernon, the estate actually has like a museum, a historical society. They did this pretty revolutionary thing a few years ago where they called George Washington out on his bullshit. And they put on this entire uh, exhibition or exhibit that was focused on the stories of enslaved people, trying to give them a voice and a, a name and a story. And on their official website, they talk about the ways that the enslaved people at Mount Vernon would sort of surreptitiously annoy or rebel against George Washington on purpose, but in ways that he couldn't prove. So it would just drive him nuts. Like they would purposefully purposefully make something just like slightly too big or too small, or um, they would work slower. It's just these like tiny rebellions that apparently drove George Washington mad because he really did not consider them people. He considered them part of a system, a machine. So in addition to being a micromanager, he was also just like a very, even for the time, a sort of stingy enslaver, which is like the weirdest combination of words to put together. But article after article after article notes that while he was less physically violent than a lot of enslavers at the time, he also was sort of withholding and manipulative with items like blankets and clothing. So in one of the articles, uh, it was written that Washington desired his enslaved workers to be fed adequately, but no more. Each enslaved person was provided with a basic daily food ration of one U.S. quart of cornmeal and up to eight ounces of herring and occasionally some meat which was a fairly typical or small ration for the enslaved population in Virginia. And it was considered adequate in terms of the calorie requirement for a young man engaged in moderately heavy agricultural labor, but nutritionally deficient. Which is like, yeah, no shit. You can't. It's fucking cornmeal and fish scraps. In addition to this, like adequate, but not really or like just adequate bar that Washington had for the basic human rights of the enslaved people at Mount Vernon. He also had this sort of proclivity for separating married couples. Because of the size of his estate, you know, at this point, 25,000 acres-ish, there were a number of farms, a number of estates, a number of places that needed to be, like, have the crops harvested, etc. And he essentially assigned enslaved workers to different plots of land based on the need that he had for that space at that time. So if there was a husband who needed to work at this other part of the farm and his wife was at another part, he would separate them. And instead of, I don't know what a best case scenario there would be, instead of nothing, what they did was they forced them to live on separate plots of land. Yeah, just separating families out of convenience for how he wanted to grow things, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so... Yeah, the humanity and the families of these people were less important to him than the convenience of having, you know, 
one extra set of hands forced to be on the other side of the yard. Right. And this necessitated this practice that was called night walking. So, right, remember, the enslaved people were forced to work six days a week, but they got Sunday off. So they would leave Saturday night, walk all night to their spouse's home, and then spend all day Sunday with them as much as they could, and then walk home all night on Sunday. George Washington, this motherfucker, had the audacity to complain that the enslaved people were tired on Mondays. Oh, no, you think? Like, explicitly, like, upset that they were tired on Mondays after having to walk dozens of miles twice to see their husband or wife. And so one person at the time, one of the overseers on his property at the time, actually wrote that Washington's, quote, indifference to the stability of the family was offset by the agony of separating families, which seemed like death to the enslaved. And article after article talked about how if you have nothing else, right, your family is the foundation upon which you build connection and community. And when you separate that, it is intentionally separate people from one another. You add a layer of pain to an already torturous situation. You might be wondering right about now, well, what about mothers and children? Were they together? Were they separated? I mean, I wasn't, but... Mm. Well, now you are. Yeah, I would rather not be, but yes, now I am. Here's what happened at Mount Vernon when a mother gave birth. They were given a fresh new blanket, ta-da, and three to five weeks of lighter duties. And then once their children reached between the ages of 11 and 14, they were forced into labor by George Washington. In 1799, nearly 60% of Washington's enslaved population was under 19 years old, and 35% were under nine. It's kids. Children. And there are countless other ways in which Washington was responsible for the, like, mistreatment and torture of enslaved human beings, especially before the Revolutionary War. And we all know what happened after the war. 1789, Washington becomes president. He moves to New York, bringing with him a dozen or so of the enslaved people who had previously been forced to work at Mount Vernon. And I just want to pause for a moment. I know I've been talking at you a lot. But this feels like an important moment to pause and reflect on the fact that we celebrate George Washington as the first president. And we never even considered the fact, and I'm saying we generally, I'll own this, I never even considered the fact that this motherfucker brought enslaved people to the first White House. Yeah, yeah. Built it into the fabric of power in in America. Despite the fact there was actually government money set aside to pay people to do the same jobs as the enslaved people that Washington brought with him. When given the alternative, free of charge to him. He had both. He brought enslaved people and paid hired white people to do the same job side by side in his White House. That's insane. That's insane. Just because explicitly, right, you're saying like, this work is important. These two people can both do it, and I'm explicitly going to dehumanize institutionally and systemically 
half of these people. After the war into his presidency, there had been a lot of calls from abolitionists to make slavery illegal. And because Washington was too afraid to sort of incite the sort of violence that would come 70, 60 years later, he uh, refused to do it. He refused to hear any abolitionist argument. And so let's pause for a second, because people use the term abolitionist, right, in its proper historical context. And I think it's easy to gloss over the fact that what that means is that people saw this, like George Washington, and then continued to enslave children for decades. And other people saw this and was like, this is wrong. This is morally wrong. This is indefensible. You have a forced labor camp with children who you're dehumanizing. Stop doing this. And he was like, I hear you. And no, I'm going to keep doing this. Right. So when we talk about like people are a product of their times, explicitly at the time, people were like, no, this is wrong. People were as convinced this was wrong as they are today. It's just that some of the people ignored that. Yes. And here's the big plot twist. By the end of his life, George Washington also thought slavery was wrong. That's a very convenient time to come to that realization, by the way. Let's talk about that realization right now. So a lot of people like to whitewash George Washington's relationship to slavery because at the end of his life, he did state explicitly that he disliked the institution of slavery. And when he died, he freed all of the enslaved people at Mount Vernon, or all of the people that he had the right to free. And that's some real fucking shit, because I'll tell you what, he could have done that when he was alive. Oh, yeah. And he, and he didn't. Day. Any day. Could have woken up on a Tuesday, been like, you know what, this is over. And he continued to purchase and enslave people for all of the decades that he lived at Mount Vernon, leading up to his death. Oh, so this was like conveniently, like not like in the twilight years, he like started to distance himself from this and then like at the very end freed people. No, he didn't free people like before he died. He was buying people up until the end in markets. Yeah, up to very close to the end. And people reference his evolution of thought as it related to the enslavement of people. Oh, people who are listening right now can't hear the fact that I just did air quotes. Evolution of thought. In, in loud air quotes. <laughs> loud yeah. air quotes. Uh, as it relates to the enslavement of people. And they make it seem like his beliefs changed as a result of some moral or ethical awakening. But the first time that he started to consider the institution of slavery as wrong was not ethical or moral. It was because of economics. So at some point, Washington decided to shift his crops from tobacco to grain and as a result was left with, quote, an expensive surplus of slaves. But because just less labor, you can bring a combine and like scoop up the wheat in a way that you can't do with tobacco? I actually have no idea what the mechanics of it are, but what it did is it caused him to question the efficiency of the system. Yeah. I mean, like if you just think about crops, right, like there's things like grapes and other small things that like get harvested by hand. And then I'm sure if you do grains, you can harvest it mechanically. And so then, oh, all of a sudden it's it's inconvenient to have to, you know, buy one of those blankets every year. Yeah. Why don't you just use machines instead? That's that's some total bullshit. It is. So skipping ahead many years, we're back to the post-White House 
George Washington following his presidency, he actually does begin to speak in earnest about freeing the enslaved people at Mount Vernon. The complicating factor here, again, he lets politics dictate a lot of his life, um, which dictate a lot of the uh, pain and mistreatment of other people's lives. Just a trickle-down effect. If folks are wondering what trickle-down effect actually looks like, it's that. It's pain to other people. It's oppression. But the complicating factor was the politics of his wife's dower interest. Do you know what a dower interest is? Uh, No. So basically, a dower interest is where each family in a marriage has a vested interest in a shared property or piece of real estate. So in this case, Mount Vernon and all of the other estates that came to George as a result of his marriage to Martha were part of the dower interest. Is it like community property? It means her family, her children, and their family, because it was by marriage. It's her children and their family actually have a say in what happens to like the grand scheme of things at Mount Vernon. Sure. And that dower interest, her children and their family, have no interest in freeing enslaved people at Mount Vernon, despite the fact, and I say this uh, not casually, but despite the fact that it had, it was not profitable for over a decade. Like it was losing money and they still were unwilling to free enslaved people. Around 1795... Washington writes to a friend that he needs help to, quote, liberate a certain species of property which I possess very repugnantly to my own feelings at this point. The plan that he wanted to put in motion around this time, 1795-96, was to free the enslaved people. But, like I said, because of this dower interest, he could not. And so it took another four or five years before, after his death, (laughs) before after his death, before the enslaved people could be freed as a result of his death. Looking back, there was a census of enslaved people at Mount Vernon in 1799, the year before his death. And what started as 10 enslaved people when George Washington was 10, now totaled 317 enslaved people, including 143 children. Yeah, it's like half, half at least children. Again, pausing right here, for someone who opposed the institution of slavery, it did not stop him from forcing over 300 people to work for him. Under penalty of death, right? Like, so like the unspoken penalty here is that like if someone tries to escape, they can be tortured. If somebody tries to leave or rebel, they'll be killed. They, they're, they're physically imprisoned and in a system where they have no human rights and will be will be killed for trying to stand up for themselves. Like, yeah, it, the violence is right below the surface. He can say that he's not a violent person, but if anyone were to choose to leave, they die, and they know it, and he knows it, and he is just going to leverage that societal pressure to get them to do whatever he wants for decades upon decades, and then their children, and then their children's children. Yes, And so he may have had this like sort of complicated relationship to the concept of slavery, but... 
he has a very uncomplicated relationship with the practice of slavery. With the practice, Which is yeah. that he does it and he accumulates an insane amount of wealth and becomes a president and brings slaves to the White House with him and refuses to do anything about it until the very end where he does seemingly the very minimum. The very bare minimum. Just like you said, he did all of those things, then he dies. A year later, uh, the enslaved people that he could free at Mount Vernon were freed. Um, obviously, a number of people had nowhere else to go. And so were essentially still forcibly uh, detained at Mount Vernon. They had no money, no place to go. That was they had the shelter of Mount Vernon. And um, a lot of families and spouses were still the property, quote unquote, property enslaved people of that his wife's dower interest. So only half of the 300 enslaved people at Mount Vernon were freed when he died. The other half were forced to stay there and continue uh, working the land. Eventually, funds from his trust were set up to feed and clothe the few formerly enslaved people who had nowhere else to go and still lived there. Um, But, you know, that is a menial act, like a bare minimum altruism, and that's a generous term, that occurred after his death because he was such a coward in life that he would not take action to stop oppressing people while he was alive. So for his lifelong enslavement of people, that specific cowardice and refusing to free them, uh, in addition to the fact that none of this shit is talked about in history books, well... None of in mainstream history books. You have to go out of your way to find this information. For those reasons and many more, George Washington is not my hero. Quite the knee slapper. Yeah, I realize that this is not one of the funnier episodes. So if it bums you out on Inauguration Day, um, sorry, not sorry. But it's really important for us to grapple with the... Uh, history of our country and how we got here to this place where we are still having to beg for basic human rights for so many people in America. Yeah, here's to hoping the next few years are uh, the start of, at the very least, a chapter in U.S. history where we are just slightly more willing to engage with the actual reality of what's going on, how we got to where we've been, and willing to like root out these systems that... These systems that are both foundational to the creation of the United States and also um, are perpetuated still. Perpetuated through... Through, through both violence and subtle systemic ways. Structures, policies, all of those things. And um, yeah, so thanks for sticking with us this episode. Thank you for grappling with these things with us or grappling with these things alongside us. It's uh, not fun sometimes, but it's really necessary. And until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero.